0: We find people that basically can't make enough uh, to, to to eat before they
1: go into the fields. I don't believe that. I think that you're looking at other places that are not Central Romana.
2: People actually who focus on and go like getting an orgasm, never get one. Pull up your
3: socks and figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> Any chance we'll ever get to be a completely
1: red rooms? Oh yeah. And for the future, always uncertain, but more know. uncertain. Uh, listen. Blue Ivy is six years old, Beyoncé,
2: she tried to outbid me on a painting. Everybody in Atlanta in right now five, at the Louis
0: Vuitton store, four, if you black, don't three, go to Louis Vuitton today. Two. That's why you need to take a meeting with Kanye West, Bernard Arnault. Hello everyone, welcome back to Grubstakers. Stakers. I'm Steve Jeffries and today I'm joined by my co-hosts, Yogi Pollywold, Sean P. McCarthy, Today we're following up on a topic we mentioned briefly during an earlier episode covering offshore money. Uh, it's a great episode and you can find it on our SoundCloud for Grubstakers. Mm-hmm. Um, and namely, uh, today we're covering Eurodollars and the LIBOR scandal, the LIBOR rigging scandal during the financial crisis 2008 and 2009, um, it was uncovered in the immediate aftermath. Uh, If you've listened to our offshore money episode or if you have heard of the Panama Papers or are just generally interested in tax havens and what the rich are doing with that, uh, you know it's a huge problem. Uh, The rich have this ability to sock away billions upon billions of dollars, settled funds offshore in tax haven countries. They're given this safe route around regulations and the tax code that normal people like me and my hosts and you don't have access to.
3: Yes, we are not engaged in any tax fraud whatsoever. (laughs) All of our books
0: are in order.
2: I don't know, Stephen. We might have some billionaires listening to the show. You never know who's listening and committing tax fraud, and also enjoying Grubstakers.
0: Yeah, well, if, if you're if you're a billionaire listening to Grubstakers right now and you feel guilty, then you can always sign up for our highest payment <laughs> tier, and um, we'll never do an episode about you. That's right. So,
3: look, if you work for the IRS, I don't care if you want us to do more episodes. If you want us to do less episodes, we can work something out. Just don't audit us. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't ask about what we did with the taxes this year. Right? <laughs> These Bermuda Shell companies, I've never heard of them.
2: Yes, we've noticed Grubstaker's LLC is connected to the corporation Really Good No Corruption Here LLC in Panama. You please explain that, Mr. Polly <laughs> I,
3: I, listen, I just... It's right in the name of the corporation, no corruption. <laughs> they don't let you name the corporation that if there's corruption in it. That's false advertising. That would be illegal.
2: They told us it was going to cost more <laughs> if we wanted a custom name, and we went with something that was the gold standard, if you know what I mean.
0: Yes. So if you stuck with us through the offshore money episode, then you necessarily had to go through some pretty complicated... Um, descriptions of just how they would do these oper- these uh, financial operations. And we mentioned one, one such tool for offshore finance called Eurodollar, which is really just a word for when dollar-denominated deposits are created outside of the U.S., as they are on the regular throughout the whole world now. Mm-hmm. And it only has euro in the name just because back in the day it was chiefly done in London. And so they just named all of it Euro and stuck with that.
2: I like how laziness prevails in all industries. It's not just podcasting <laughs> or comedy. It's it's banking. It's the financial world. Yeah, Euro dollars. Fuck it. Who gives
0: a shit?
3: It <laughs> sounds to me like we need to decolonize offshore money laundering. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it just needs more diversity. Mm-hmm. So the rich's ability to sock away settled funds... Is already grotesque enough and also fairly complicated. So, thank you for stay, sticking with us. If you if you listen to the offshore money episode on that, and if not, check it out. But another area that I think is equally important is offshore banking, namely lending of dollars uh, on a credit basis outside of the U.S., um, not subject to most of the regulations that you would be. If you were in operating in the Federal Reserve system, like if you are using FDIC, F, FDIC uh, insured funds, you have to report where the money is going, who it's going to, the nature of your business, yada yada yada, uh, on the regular. Whereas with Eurodollar deposits, you don't have to do that generally, and it's a very intract- it's a very attractive investment, like on a short term basis for people uh for a variety of reasons, for to use as a means of payment by countries to get necessary imports and other legitimate things like that. But there's also illegitimate uses and such as what transpired with the LIBOR rigging scandal. Hmm. And so it's kind of this mix it's it's not nearly as discussed as, say, the Panama Papers were and the Panama papers were shockingly showed up shockingly little in the news mm-hmm. so you can imagine how much euro dollars come up in the general consciousness but we thought it would be useful to just explain what they were if the fdic is like rubbing your ass with sandpaper uh, euro dollars
2: are like a bidet <laughs> it's just really it's really really <laughs> easy and let's it let's it get
0: that shit done with with less regulation it's european <laughs> so why do banks issue euro dollars well the simple answer is because they can make a ton of money doing it and we'll get into just how big this market is, but it's enormous. And But the longer answer is what basically we're talking about today, which is that Euro dollars or like I was saying, dollar-denominated bank deposits that were originated outside of the U.S. Um, what they literally are is short-duration time deposits and cash d- and CDs, hmm. which banks... Create uh, outside of the U.S. and they generally only have a duration of like three months, if if that. Oh really? And people use them as like a short-term funding source nowadays. For, like, banks use them as a funding source to settle their payments against each other, and occasionally traders will even use them as a means to do um, what are called carry trades between currency options and stuff like that hmm. and so in a lot of ways they're like a really attractive attractive investment and eurodollars dollars have many legitimate uses also like such as like buying imports that you that are available only in dollars that you otherwise wouldn't be able to on a credit basis but they also have nefarious uses so we'll get into that so it's sort of like a strength but it's also it's a strength of the system that you offer these things and I'm not I'm not like inherently against it in principle but it's also a potential weak point in that it has this very little oversight over it and there are some a few huge players who who do have incentive to manipulate things for their own purposes like in uh in for trading and stuff and such
3: And so I guess in terms of the illegitimate uses, one of the incentives of going outside of the United States to get your dollar deposited accounts is it's not subject to, as we mentioned, FDIC and other U.S. regulators. It's, I would assume, the main illegitimate reason to do this is to get away from U.S. regulators of the dollar that you would be subjected to if you did dollar-denominated accounts within the United States.
0: Right. So there's onshore money onshore U.S. dollar creation is done ex- almost entirely through the Federal Reserve System, which has all these regulations. And so big banks, uh, some specialty lending outfits, and the very rich often use euro dollars as a way to get short-term dollars for relatively cheap
2: hmm.
0: without all of the scrut- the regulatory scrutiny.
2: So going back to like the good uses of it, is the reason why it's got less regulators f- so that you could do more things that were intended to be for good
0: reasons? Or am I misreading that? It's a bit complicated. So the history of it was when we had the first Bretton Woods system, that that uh, famous conference at Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, where they just decided we were going to be on a fixed exchange rate regime and have all these uh, gold convertibility rules and whatnot. Mm-hmm um that was soon after that happened is when euro dollars came into existence Mm. and they did so as a way it was partly born out of like you know obviously uh it was an area for banks to make money supplying this credit uh, on a wholesale basis overseas but it was also giving like developing countries access to dollar markets that they wouldn't otherwise have gotcha and, like, if you need to buy a bunch of capital equipment to build your agricultural sector or something like that in in your developing country and you need dollars to do it, then you don't – it's rather expensive to go to the Federal Reserve or a U.S. bank to do it. Right, it right. It would be cheaper to use the euro dollars. Hmm. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. So, that's that's a legitimate use. Now, euro dollars are priced in LIBOR. And LIBOR is something we also talked about in the last in the episode I mentioned. Um, there was a scandal in which it was rigged. Uh, so LIBOR, just as a recap, is an average of several large banks in the U.S., Japan, and London. What their of what their costs of costs of funds are. Mm. And all of these banks each day would submit their rate to the LIBOR committee. Right. And then they would use the average of whatever they were and say, all right, this is today's LIBOR rate. And then from there, lots of different other uh, products in banking use it as a reference rate. And a reference rate is just like when you're pricing a banking product, you say, here's my reference rate. Here's the margin over that, the markup over my costs." that I need in order to make a decent profit, and that's what my price is gonna be, or my interest rate that I charge people. And LIBOR was important because, and still is actually for a little while longer, in that it's it's used as a reference rate for lots and lots of banking products that people use every day, like a a home equity line of credit against a single family home is often using LIBOR as the reference rate. So, when the LIBOR scandal broke out i e when they were submitting fraudulent uh rates to LIBOR for its average, they were necessarily fucking with people how much people had to pay banks oh. to to pay back their home equity lines of credit and certain mortgages and stuff so it's really evil if you think about it in in terms of like what they're literally doing like with the fraud and what it goes into. It's very evil in that it's like it's skimming a little bit for millions of people and making their lives just a little bit harder in order for you to make a short term trading profit.
2: Right.
3: I like how the episodes are going from like pre calculus to calculus, where we started (laughs) out with okay, yeah. So I hope you were paying attention last class when uh, in between talking about how sexy Antonio Banderas is, we explained LIBOR (laughs) to you. So I hope you remembered LIBOR because you're going to need to understand LIBOR to understand this next concept we're introducing in this episode. That's, a, that's right. That's right, everyone. It's a steve ep.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I Listen, I think I got a good way of dumbing it down, okay? So you're at a bar, all right? And, uh-huh. and you're getting, uh, let's say, chicken wings or mozzarella sticks or whatever, right? So LIBOR is the people that printed up the menus, right? but the people decided that fuck the lieware people we're going to print our own menus that got a higher cost and so the customer then pays $80 for mozzarella sticks but the cost to the server is only you know <clears throat> 10 bucks not that the server's got to buy it but they do in this situation so they're pocketing the $70 and fucking over the customer and that I don't know why in this example I decided to make it $80 for mozzarella sticks but in the grand <clears throat> scheme of analogies this one most likely kind of works uh, in that the server is then pocketing money that uh, the LIBOR was supposedly supposed to regulate. And, uh, Stephen, how long had this been going on, this uh, mozzarella stick <laughs> server bar situation <laughs> that I've posed to you?
0: Well, the li- that they know of, mm-hmm. it was going on from about 2001 to 2012. Okay, mm. So, long time. There are some reports... I, I've heard that it went back; it was happening earlier. Mm-hmm. Right. But the, like the SEC's case against the banks that had traders doing this only span from the time period I mentioned. <laughs> but like every now and then, you'll hear a report. I think Sean, you're looking up one where there was a trader from said that it was still going on in 1991.
3: Yeah, there was a Financial Times article from twenty twelve that quoted a trader as saying it was LIBOR manipulation was widespread going back to at least nineteen ninety one. And then, you know, uh a statistic I think we gave on the offshore money episode is that LIBOR kinda underpins interest rates on approximately three hundred and fifty trillion US dollars worth what? of derivatives. So yeah. You know, just like so many global financial products are linked to it, and if you take the manipulation all the way back to 91, this is, uh, you know, it's a fraud, a financial scam that dwarfs any other in history by just orders of magnitude, the amount of money people were able to skim off the top by doing this.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's really a shame that that story kind of got lost amidst everything else that was going on. Right. Because, like, even though... I, I, what we're actually talking about is they submit fraudulent rates. they just a few basis points different than what you would expect given their actual costs. Mm-hmm. But if it's $350 trillion worth of stuff that's priced in LIBOR, then it doesn't take that many hundredths of a percent to really fuck things up. Yeah. Because there's lots of, I mean, there's the home equity lines of credit, like I was mentioning, but there's also more exotic things, such as uh, futures, currency futures contracts and stuff and your dollars
3: yeah what i like is you know the real gangsters in the world you have to do homework to even understand (laughs) what they're doing (laughs) like like you can figure out el chapo and the sinaloa cartel pretty quickly Mm -hmm. but to Mm -hmm. get fucking libor you got to sit through two uh grubstakers pre-calculus lessons and now we're moving you on to uh advanced calculus with grubstakers just so you can understand why these people are gangsters and criminals
2: Stephen, one, the one question I had for you was that when you mentioned the fraudulent paperwork, what were they doing exactly? Were they adding zeros to numbers, or was it like they just didn't show the? Like, I'm 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 intrigued to hear how the scandal actually works.
0: Yeah, what was literally happening was each bank was required to report in what their LIBOR number was, which mm-hmm. is really just an interest rate, and so if it was if they ran all of their projections on what their costs were and they said, all right, well, it should be 30 point three seven. They, they would receive a call from someone, possibly a trader or uh, more likely like an email or just talking in person uh, that said uh, instead of submitting 37, can you please submit 39 so that some bullshit reason. And then what actually, what they What was really happening is he wanted to submit it as 39 so that this guy could write a futures contract based on the 37 and then get back a profit because it goes up to 39 later. Mm. So they're trying to move around what the actual reported LIBOR for the day is by submitting a higher one in the hopes that it raises – because LIBOR itself is an average of all these different submissions from the banks – and so some of the banks and the traders were co- coordinating with each other to raise and lower it, uh, in a way out that was out of line with the estimates of cost that the banks needed as per LIBOR. I see. That is like the most boring way to ruin the world. <laughs> it's one of the most benign evils. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's a conscious decision by the banks but then it's just like it's skimming a little like all of a sudden all of a sudden your loan payment is a little bit higher and you don't know why right hmm. and it could well be could be because of like a london a city like a london city trader just needed a favor that day so that his physician could make a profit and like that would literally be the reason that's dumb <laughs> <laughs> like like i, so I am, this is like fraud this is fraud 301 yeah
2: it, it, this is this is like i don't know it, it's crazy how much it sounds like uh similar to the uh office space superman 3 plot where they're skimming a percentage of a percentage to raise an average to then bet on the average to then allow them i mean this is the library case not super, uh, office space but it like it, it <laughs> it's so to simplify it only makes it sound like it's a scheme that could never work but it clearly did for a decade
3: well it's like i mean it is a mafia scheme where you know if you were trying to build something in new york in the 70s or 80s uh all right so you got to use this fucking mobbed up guy's cement company and he's gonna send you cement but it costs a little bit more right or you got to, you know, use his uh, waste management company. He's going to take care of your waste, but it costs a little bit more. So it was just kind of what's happened with banking, you know, since the uh, collapse of the New Deal, is it's returned to this um, really gangster profession that has no concept of fiduciary duty. And the idea that your responsibility is to, you know, be conduct yourself with honesty and integrity and to make your clients money, not to make yourself money. And and it's just like the thing is we, we talk about LIBOR and I think it's no matter how many times we emphasize it, it's easy to almost think this is not that big a deal. This is like, you know, like not as significant as the 2008 crisis or whatever else. I just want to like give you a quote here from Andrew Lowe, uh, MIT professor of finance uh, on the LIBOR scandal. This dwarfs by orders of magnitude any financial scam in the history of markets. Wow. So like... <laughs> In all of recorded history, this is, by orders of magnitude, the greatest and the largest financial scam ever executed.
0: Yep. It went on for longer. It involved larger notional values than the mortgage crisis. Uh, I mean, the mortgage crisis directly impacted homeowners in a way that you could argue that the Libra scandal did not, but... This was just nickel and diming average people across the world for mm-hmm. at least eleven years. Wow. So <laughs> and um, I should emphasize that they were sort of the dumb like the the dumb explanation of LIBOR for people who sort of half care is that oh, it was they were price fixing instead of letting it run with the market rate or something. Mm. But I mean, you know what? I mean, people set prices all the time. That's how most companies set their prices. They have someone who just decides what it should be, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. What was wrong is that they didn't state... There's rules to LIBOR, and they weren't following them, mm-hmm. and they were just setting prices that didn't have anything to do with the bank's actual cost for the day. So it was fraud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not the same thing as merely setting a price. <laughs> So to move along to what we're talking about today is um they're trying to replace the LIBOR in 2021 with another uh reference rate called the secured overnight financing rate or SOFR hmm. also known as SOFR and there also there's a couple other reference rates that they're considering such as the Euro short-term rate, or the Easter, if you will, mm-hmm. Esther. Easter. Unfortunately, though these aren't manipulation-proof. So these ones, SOFR, which is what we're talking about today, is the U.S. one, and it's supposed to be less prone to manipulation because it's it includes a broader measure of different costs that banks are going to just submit as part of their regular filings with the FDIC. And to just give you a full explanation of what it actually is. um, The secured overnight financing rate is a broad measure of the cost of borrowing cash overnight collateralized by treasury securities. So this is something that it's a lot harder to game. You could still do it, though. It's just you wouldn't be able to just make up one number and then submit it like you would with whiteboard. Right, you'd have to you'd have to have an entire department of people in a bank who were systematically inflacy, inflating the costs of their business, so that and then submitting that, and then telling the traders beforehand, and then they could write securities based on SOFR which were using the fake one, the the fake rate as part of their price, and then they would profit off of that. So there's a few extra steps this time. Gotcha.
3: Hmm. But it's still possible. But so it's yeah. established that this is uh, going to replace LIBOR? Because I know there were like LIBOR reforms to bring it more under UK jurisdictional control, and then I guess they've kind of set it up to phase it phase out LIBOR and bring in this new system.
0: Yeah, so this group called the Alternative Reference Rate Um, committee commission committee they've been working with um partners at banks in the industry to roll out their replacements for so for uh for LIBOR in the form of SOFR and then the euro version of SOFR and the idea that's what they're working towards basically they want to replace it in 2021
1: Hmm.
0: so like I was saying unfortunately SOFR is not manipulation proof so banks, while so banks cannot submit biased estimates like they did with LIBOR this time, but they can influence the benchmark by borrowing or lending at a biased rate. So if you had a bunch of people consistently uh, offering, extending people credit on an inflated rate or a deflated rate that's over or above wherever the SOFR was legitimately earlier, then you can still affect it. And it's not just a theoretical possibility. So an FT article reminds us that, for example, in the the 2014 scandal around the manipulation of foreign exchange benchmarks involved exactly this strategy. Um, Given that the market for benchmark index contracts is much larger than the wholesale funding market gains from manipulating the benchmark would often outweigh losses generated by trading at biased rates. So it might seem like, okay, they have to inflate their costs, so doesn't that cancel out any benefit from rigging? And it's like, no, actually, because there's more of a business in in the areas that they could feed the fake rate into than the one in which they had to inflate the costs in the first place. So they gain more than they lose, basically. Or they could if they were to rig sofa in this way.
3: It's it's just so funny to like do this podcast for two years and then hear Yeah, so you're gonna have to rely on the integrity of the major banks <laughs> on Wall Street <laughs> and also rely on their deep fear of criminal penalties right. when they do misdeeds and just depend that those two factors are gonna gonna make them do the right thing here.
2: Listen, when it comes to the world's finances, if you
0: can't trust the big banks, who can you trust really? <laughs> so, who exactly created SOFR? Well, it was made by a group called the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, and or the, AA, the ARRC. And the ARRC's membership is comprised of a set of private market participants and people at the Federal Reserve who as a group they like the fed will propose rule changes based on like uh Basil 3 or one of the banking the international banking standards and they'll ask the private companies for input on what they think potential issues would be and if that doesn't seem slightly worrying then you're probably watching you're listening to the wrong podcast <laughs> <laughs> but Uh, Some of these members, for example, are Bank of America, BlackRock, Citigroup, CME Group, Comerica, Deutsche Bank, Fannie Mae, uh, the Ford Motor Company, (laughs) GE Capital, Goldman Sachs, HSBC, AXA, the American Bankers Association, and the Association for Financial Professionals. And each of them has, like, a representative. It's in something called a working group. And they're tasked with giving feedback on whatever the Fed or the SEC proposes as part of this transition, like, for this transition plan to, say, get rid of LIBOR and go to SOFR. Right.
3: Mm-hmm. It's like if a cop pulled you over and went, uh, so how fast do you think I should be letting you go? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, before we uh, started recording, Stephen was explaining some of this to me, and I said, so it would be like if like a gun manufacturer was involved with the rules that cops used? And uh, Stephen let me know that uh, that's a thing that already is happening currently. So my hypothetical <laughs> as to a dystopian future that may occur with the gun manufacturers and the military in this country is something that actually does currently occur.
3: <laughs> well, Did it does say- so, like episode the... on it.
0: Uh- yeah, yeah, like uh, Glock. Oh, I, I was in the, thinking I wasn't there for that episode. Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. Well, in the Glock episode, we were talking about how they they'll they'll link up directly with police departments and sell to them, and like they lobby mm. city and state police forces, and will agree to long term contracts to sell them Glocks. And that's like a decentralized thing, but this is very centralized compared to that. Right. Right. So this is like a centrally planned. Uh, government like a 5-year plan essentially to go on to sover
2: to um add on to that list that uh, Stephen mentioned that's a part of the board that is the ARRC from the uh, newyorkfed.org the internal systems and processes transition aid for sofar adoption at the end of the 56 page document they have an acknowledgments and the companies in that list are Essentier Chatham Financial, DBRS, Deloitte, Goldman Sachs, KPMG, Morgan Lewis, and Boaklius LLP, Oliver Wyman, and TD Bank. So these are individuals who made significant efforts to contribute to this document. Uh, the, the banking world works together in fucking over the common man.
3: Did you guys see the New York Fed put out a statement in solidarity with Black Lives Matter? <laughs> and I just thought it I saw it was so funny to me. It's like imagining the fucking Gambino crime family being like, yeah, Black Lives Matter. My cousin <laughs> Tony. Uh, yeah, so this group, this
0: committee and these private companies, they're the ones who literally wrote SOFR in 2017. And they selected SOFR as the rate that represents what they thought was the best practice for use in certain new USD derivatives and other financial contracts, quote. Um, Representing the ARRC's preferred alternative to USD-LIBOR. And they say that SOFR is, quote, much more resilient rate uh, than LIBOR because of how it is produced and the depth and liquidity of the markets that underlie it. As an overnight secured rate, SOFR better reflects the ways... Financial institutions fund themselves today. Hmm. The transaction volumes underlying SOFR regularly are around $1 trillion in daily volumes. What? Yeah. The volumes underlying SOFR are far larger than the transactions in any other U.S. market. Now, they said U.S. market, but what about non-offshore? Right. That's the onshore market. Yeah, what about yeah, the yeah. offshore market is what I, I would like to ask the ARRC if I was there. Hmm. And that's where we get into eurodollar stuff, which we found some interesting articles on. Sort of the history that we want just to give a short background of their use. Um. So the first the first eurodollar contract was done on February twenty eighth, nineteen fifty seven. Hmm. It was for some eight hundred thousand dollars, and that created the first eurodollars. So it was the first offshore dollar creation. Gotcha. Hmm. And ever since that time, you find it in the news every now and then. It pops up something about the euro dollar in the business press. But I think the average person just doesn't really is never going to hear the word, basically. Sure. Ex- except on this podcast.
3: <laughs> um, which I word is found... that? What? I said, which <laughs> word is that?
0: <laughs> euro dollar. In case anyone was just wondering.
3: Is it referring to China people as celestials? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I found an old article from New York Times from November thirteenth, nineteen seventy-nine that was that mentioned Euro dollars for one example. Um, and it's on a proposed rule change because the Euro they called it the Euro currency market back then. It was kind of exploding. And if you look at the economic history during the during the oil crises, eurodollars also exploded as like kind of a way for people to get dollars hmm. beyond transacting in oil. So, like, if suddenly nobody's trading oil, it's like a lot of people couldn't get dollars anymore. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. That's the whole. That's part of the links up with the petrodollar stuff. At least insofar as, um, I agree with the petrodollar uh the evidence is there that people do need to sell oil often like the petro states need mm-hmm. to sell oil in order to get dollars and then they use those dollars to get needed imports so suddenly that dries up now you need to use euro dollars
3: right yeah and and this seems like a basic point but just to clarify so the euro dollar market is so dominant because the dollar is the reserve currency of the world And I guess the basic definition of that is that the dollar, the U.S. dollar, is the primary currency used to conduct global transactions. Therefore, it is the reserve currency. Is that correct? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's correct. It's good to say up front, actually. Uh, It's a good call because uh, if it was, I mean, if the yen was was the, happened to be the global reserve currency, then I guess it would be uh, euro yen Mm -hmm. or something like that. There is euro yen, but it's not actually... Uh, because of their fucked up laziness in naming the shit in financial literature, mm-hmm. everything is just euro dollar, regardless of what other country originated it. So sometimes you'll see it referred to as euro yen, even though it's it's still dollars. It's just it's done by a Japanese bank, right? That's originating the dollars. So it's like with the get your get your naming <laughs> Wait a nomenclature straight.
3: Are you telling me that if a Japanese bank creates U.S. dollars, it's called Euro-Yen? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> They're hiding this shit from us. <laughs> it's just, too
0: its too silly for us not to know about it.
3: Just wait until I get my PhD in mathematics. It's over for these bankers. I'll finally <laughs> understand what they've been up to. It, it does seem, like, extra stupid. Like...
2: The fact that uh, there hasn't been another name for it is very uh, minor, but just, you know, I don't know if I am smarter than I thought or if the world is dumber than I thought, because everything we've we've covered on the show uh, boils down to people that... said that they were better than they were, promised shit that they couldn't, and then ended up fucking the world over. That's like most of the stories we cover on this uh, podcast. And uh, in the case of banking, I've become the most disappointed because I remember uh, as a youth thinking to myself, the people that are in frats that are getting drunk every night don't seem to have a future after college. And now I'm learning, uh, no, the future they had was was uh, in banking uh, calling euro yen, euro dollars, and not really giving a fuck.
3: Yeah, can I just say, I I just finished um, the documentary The Last Narc on on Netflix, Mm -hmm. a four-part documentary series, or or, sorry, on Amazon Prime. Uh, I very much recommend it to people. The primary allegation in that documentary is that in 1985, a DEA agent named Kiki Camarena was uh, tortured and murdered by the CIA in Mexico Mm -hmm. because he had discovered that the CIA was running uh, cocaine with the Mexican cartels directly into the United States, giving the cartels weapons, doing all this in order to uh, fund uh, the illicit covert war in Nicaragua Mm. and Guatemala and other such places. But if the CIA can get away with murdering a DEA agent can you imagine how easy it is to get away with this shit we're talking about <laughs> where you just can't even understand what the fuck they're doing yeah <laughs> but like they can just like f- put a power drill through a DEA agent's kneecap and then nobody's gonna say shit for 40 years uh so <laughs> this stuff that's totally incomprehensible You you can just imagine how much they're getting away with here
0: speaking of the CIA we found an old declassified CIA research paper uh, that was on Soviet banks from... From 1969. Nice. From 1969. Nice. It goes through... It's mainly concerned with uh, Soviet banks. It was giving a history of Soviet banks outside of Russia, outside of the Soviet Union, rather, Mm -hmm. and how they've been... uh, financing international operations for like communist parties in other countries Hmm. and the cia was pretty a little worried that they were getting into the euro currency market the euro dollars and using that to finance like uh, like liberation uprisings elsewhere and that it would be kind of like they would leverage that to to fund like rebels in other countries that the u.s had interests in right and uh sean i think you read you read the cia paper and has some findings on it
3: yeah i read the paper it's just 18 pages and it's just kind of a basic overview of what soviet banks were up to in the in the west in 1969 nice um they they talk about um the uh the moscow Narodny nirondi bank in london mnb and uh, BCEN Bank in Paris. Mm. So these were both owned by— um, they were directed and owned by the State Bank of the Soviet Union and the Foreign and Trade Bank of the Soviet Union. But these two banks, you know, in Paris and London, they hired uh, local nationals as kind of the staff of it, and they hired them based on banking expertise, not on uh, not for ideological reasons. So it's just kind of like the Soviets set up this bank and— um in London and one in Paris. They set up another one in Switzerland and they use it to kind of, for a few different reasons, they use it to facilitate trade between um, the East and the West. Um, They use it to extend credit to um, Soviet regimes. They also just use it as a profit making opportunity. Uh, Apparently the CIA was estimating that these two banks, uh, MNB in London and BCEN in Paris were getting about a 10% return on capital. Um, you know and then they were and they were kind of mainly interested in the european banks because they felt that in the event of a deterioration in relationship with the united states it was less likely that their assets in these banks would be seized in europe than they would be in uh if they were in new york or somewhere else sure um and i guess it's all it's and you know And the CIA also speculates about how there was intelligence value, like for spying, of just being involved in these Western financial markets, because these things, just because they're Soviet Union-owned, they still conduct transactions like any other bank. Mm -hmm. They make business loans, they extend short-term credit, they hold account balances. Um, So just doing that, you interact with the entire Western financial system, and you kind of learn what's going on with the major Western banks, what's going on with the governments associated with them. Um, And then just like one other kind of observation I had, the CIA in 69 estimated that the value of these two banks, their assets exceeded 1.6 billion US dollars. And, you know, I mean, that's 1969 money. But it is kind of worth emphasizing that, the Soviet Union was always just this kind of mouse that was turned into a tiger by the uh, Western military-industrial complex. Because, like, $1.6 I mean, it's a lot of money, but you compare it with, like, just the amount of money flowing through the entire Western financial system, it's not like these people were... Dominant. And in fact, the CIA report lays out these Soviet banks actually just didn't really have the resources to make medium or long term or to make many medium or long term loans. They were mostly engaged in short term lending. And in fact, you know, the the Soviets and um, uh, people associated with the bank would actually rely on Western banks to make these to make most of these medium and long term loans just because they had more more capital access. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's an interesting paper. It just kind of explains how this um, world uh, euro-dollar market market works. And it, of course, said that both of these banks were heavily involved in that and were making profit uh, through that market.
0: Yeah. Certainly the mouse that roared.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so jumping back to today, the uh, it's difficult to get... An estimate on just how large the euro dollar market is for obvious reasons since it takes place in the shadow banking system Mm -hmm. and it's i mean the whole point of it a selling point is that you don't know where and how much there is of it but there have been a few papers that try to estimate that and uh the range is quite wide so if you there's a few papers uh linked in the wiki actually for euro dollar that say um by 2016 the euro dollar market size was estimated at around 13.8 trillion dollars and then there's other there's another more recent claim that uses a somewhat different metric um, by the the bureau of international settlement, settlement bank of international settlements rather that puts the figure much higher at almost 57 trillion dollars by the end of 2018. Hmm. And they're including everything, over the counter derivatives, uh debt liabilities, um imports priced in euro dollars that were related, later used to get real dollars. Hmm. Um so that's kind of like the whole es- like the kitchen sink estimate of it would be about 57 trillion roughly around today. That's the most recent estimate I could find, but it's a huge market. And so the problem with the Euro dollar market for system fragility is it's a credit system, which means they it runs on the belief that if you did need to settle in real dollars, then you would be able to. So as long as everyone agrees that that is possible, they continue to transact with these little credits against one another that they can just net out at the, at these offshore banks. So like every time the bank, an uh, offshore bank creates a Euro dollar deposit, right. it's just, it's really, it's not going out and finding real dollars. It's just creating these out of nothing and has the belief that eventually if an, if, if they happen to have a net outflow of dollars from the deposits that they created, it's going to be okay because they'll be able to afford the real dollars that they would need to settle that. Hmm. So the whole thing runs off that belief.
3: Oh, and just one other thing I uh, didn't quite explain right with the uh, the Soviet banks, just according to the CIA report, and this ties into what we've been talking about this whole episode, a lot of the Soviet Eastern Bloc countries, they had chronic difficulties in, in hard currency for their balance of payments. When they're trying to do import-exports, they have problems getting access to you know hard U.S. dollars, Uh, or Deutsche Marks, or whatever the currency happened to be. So kind of the role these banks, you know, in Paris and London facilitated for the Soviet Union is that the Soviet Union um, and some other countries would be holding dollar balances, U.S. dollar balances, but by putting them into this, you know, bank in Paris or bank in London, that bank can in turn make loans and engage in other business practices with these dollar deposits that the soviets have and in turn make it into a profit-making opportunity Hmm. so you know the soviets had dollars but they kind of needed these banks to make money with the dollars to do something with the dollars
0: yeah it's a good point so there that's an example of the many legitimate uses of things like euro dollars that these banks were up to is that um, the soviets needed to import food and medicine to the less advanced sectors of its territory and they needed dollars in order to do that, and this helps them do that.
1: Hmm.
0: Was does that mean that they weren't also up to other things like arming guerrillas? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they were. <laughs> so that's what the CIA, what the CIA was certainly worried about. That, but if you look at like the the provable transactions is just like facilitating trade and boring boring stuff like that that nonetheless needs to get done.
3: Wow. Yeah, if I was a CIA agent and I found out that somebody was arming gorillas using secret funding (laughs) sources, well, you could just (laughs) knock me over with a feather. I can't believe somebody would (laughs) violate their fiduciary duty and do something like that. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) Sean, are you drinking water, milk, and a beer?
3: I'm drinking kefir, water, and a beer, yes. Okay, all
2: right. Isn't kefir yogurt and water, essentially?
3: (laughs) It's fermented milk. It is basically milk. Yeah, so technically you're right, yogi. <laughs> but I, th- I wanted to underline like, it's not like, just a glass of milk. it' was like, like damn, Sean, sort of you freak. fucking
2: triple fist in fucking beer, milk, and water, motherfucker. What type of horse throat no. you got, son? <laughs>
3: People, people can't get what I'm drinking at just some old fucking bodega, Yogi. This is not, this is not two percent. This is the fermented. You got to go to Whole Foods if you want the Sean McCarthy liquid experience uh, for your advanced trigonometry podcast. So the euro dollar system is both
0: a strength but also a weakness. So it's a strength in that it helps people get shit that they can't make in their territory for somewhat cheaper if they can't don't have access to the regular US markets and things like that facilitate trade and that's obviously a strength but the negative is it's used for all this other stuff and it's fundamentally it has a weakness in that the system as a whole is going to be short real dollars It's going to be short real dollars because of the profit that the banks need to make by making the deposits. Hmm. So eventually you need to get more dollars into the system from those activities, real ones, than than the banks that made the loans starting out had in order for it to be worth it for them. And that's during normal times. But if there's a crisis or something and suddenly everyone wants to get very liquid in their finances, then i.e. they want real dollars, Right. then all the people playing the Eurodollar game will try to get out of Eurodollars and into real dollars at the same time. And they're not able to do that. In fact, that's exactly what happened in 2009. Is that there was a run on the Eurodollar s- system. And since they're not in the nice, safe environment of the FDIC, Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. onshore system... They don't have assurances about like, oh, your deposits are insured up to two hundred fifty thousand or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no such guarantee. You could try buying private private deposit insurance, which I looked up and is a thing, but it's very expensive.
2: Really, private deposit insurance is a thing? I didn't even know. Th- yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> there is private deposit insurance, but like, it's it's pretty pretty small sure. market
3: but it's like um it's like the mmt explanation for money creation right steve where um these banks that are offshore are essentially creating dollars by making dollar denominated loans but they just don't have that many dollars which are only created by uh, you know, the Fed and the um, the U.S. government. So if there's a run, then suddenly there's a bunch of dollars that technically exist in, like, accounts and are loans, but they don't really exist because the institutions don't have that many dollars.
0: Yeah, um, exactly. So they have, just like, just like an onshore bank that MMT says is creating IOUs, that says, like, it creates a deposit... And it gives you that, i.e. credits your account with 100000 for a mortgage loan or something. And mm-hmm. then it also expects that same amount back plus interest over time. So just how that's happening, the onshore banks also are creating IOUs. It's just that it's in a, a currency that they don't have any one-to-one exchange with because they're outside of the Fed system. Hmm. So the MMT explanation of the offshore is essentially that they have one more constraint on their lending, namely that they, they do have a reserve constraint that eventually they do need to find real dollars. If something went wrong
1: Hmm.
0: and like in 2009, when something did go wrong, there was a huge spike in the, uh, in the Euro dollar market downwards as people tried to rush back into real dollars. Hmm. So there was a run on Euro dollars in 2009 and there's been through through the process of reforms and stuff, they want to use SOFR and they're trying to, uh, by way of those reforms, the use of Euro dollars has waned at times as people are expecting there to be more scrutiny mm-hmm. on their use, like, in connection with SOFR. However, um, as of late, with the coronavirus, um, the demand for dollars has increased a bit because of just people want to get liquid and the dollars you know is at the top of the liquidity hierarchy. So like recently the three month LIBOR since we're still using LIBOR for a little bit more, uh these are products like li like euro dollars which are priced in three month LIBOR have spiked in terms of like the spread on what people are asking the price people are asking at and the 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 price that sellers are asking for and the offer that people are offering to buy for, has widened, indicating that uh, the market is experiencing more volatility, i.e. people are demanding, but it can't be supplied necessarily.
1: Hmm.
0: And that's a very recent development. And that kind of brings up the question of, could there be, is this like, is there going to be another run on the euro dollars that they just can't match? And... It turns out the Fed is kind of thinking ahead a bit and they introduced this new thing called the FEMA repo facility, F I M A repo mm. facility. And essentially this allows any central bank, including emerging markets, to swap their US Treasury holdings, their on i.e. their their onshore USD, which can then be made available for for USD more more easily. And This repo facility is sort of like a swap line. Swap lines are what they call, like, the, in a nutshell, they're the formal credit agreements between central banks, between the Fed and, say, the Bank of England or the Bank of Japan or any of the U.S. trade partners as far as how you get dollars on a short-term basis. And those are, like, those aren't available to everyone. Like, there are sanctioned countries who don't. And there are other countries experiencing, like, sovereign debt crises who also don't. Like, they will shut down the swap line for certain people and say, you got to go to the IMF and get your loans instead. We won't do business with you. Right. This is uh, this is used as, what, kind of a foreign policy tool, almost. Really, like, a, a tool of uh, U.S. imperialism. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I was looking up, a, on a side note, I was looking up a manual for standard and on how they rank um, how they rate countries' sovereign default risk Mm -hmm. and I was like this is basically a manual on how to do US imperialism. (laughs) It's just like it's just a way to say that like oh gotta gotta cut you off (laughs) from (laughs) now you now you have to accept more onerous uh, debt terms you have to you can no longer make loans based on your own currency you have to use Uh, USD-based loans from the IMF and whatnot instead. And like, you know, then maybe we'll upgrade you to a B minus.
3: Right, but, and to just underline something um, that you said earlier, Steve, you were saying the estimates as to the size of the euro dollar market is maybe 50 trillion or something in that range. But when we talk about 57 trillion about, but X trillion of that is not backed up by hard dollar reserves uh correct. So if there were yeah. a run, you know, just X trillion of that is either gone or you're just gonna have to rely on the Federal Reserve to bail out wherever you put your money. So, yep. you know, it 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 is a classic bank run scenario where this could absolutely explode and, you know very possibly tens of trillions of dollars of wealth that people thought they had just disappears overnight.
0: Yeah. And one way they've tried One way the banks involved in the euro dollar market have tried to ameliorate this risk Mm -hmm. is by using, if it's a global bank, they use their US, uh, the US depository, the branch of their operations, like part of the business is like resupplying settled US dollars to the system, Hmm. like recycling it through some other program of theirs back into the euro dollar market to keep that topped off as far as Uh, reducing the risk of a bank run on euro dollars. Hmm. And that worked for a while leading up to 2009, but then they needed those dollars to collateralize other crazy financialized uh, things in the onshore market that we've talked about, like, in the Citigroup episode, Hmm. like, for CDOs and whatnot. Right. So they stopped. They said, like, you're on your own basically to the euro market, the euro dollar market for a while while we go play the casino uh, back on shore. And it worked. It seemed like, all right, well, nothing's really going on now until they had like a spike in volatility when it became a huge problem. Evidently, someone must ensure that euro dollars are made available on a massive scale, not just to foreign central banks, but write down global USD supply chains essentially. The Fed the Fed can do it to an extent with their swap lines, i.e. Ex- like, give relatively relatively cheap dollar swaps with other central banks for their trade partners, but that's clearly not enough to supply the system, as evidenced by the fifty seven trillion in the euro dollar market. Right. And a lot of those Euro dollars are being used speculatively these days as a source of funding for other like for other operations like traders will use euro dollars in what are called carry trades to buy to buy futures contracts of currencies uh denominated in USD using euro dollars as credit rather than going out and finding US dollars and it's kind of a way to get leverage on your trade so like you you could go out and get the dollars and then make the currency trade, or you could use euro dollars instead. And it's a bit cheaper, but if something goes wrong, you'll either, if it goes right, you'll make more than you would have using dollars, but if it goes wrong, you'll lose more than you would have. So everything is magnified. Hmm. So there's that speculative activity that makes it, adds to the risk overall for the system. Hmm. And it leads one to wonder, basically, like, uh so they have sofer now and euro dollars are going to be start being priced in sofer theoretically next year will it actually be safer or will they start rigging um, sofer like they did libor and add potentially to volatility to the euro dollar market like i would say like we were outlining it's a bit more difficult for them to manipulate SOFR, but not impossible. Hmm. In fact, if you really, if you were really adamant on doing it, it wouldn't. It it's not a difficult thing to imagine. You just have to have a lot of people at the bank coor- more people coordinating at the bank than was the case with LIBOR, to submit either, like either you could submit false cost data mm-hmm. f- across the broad range of things that SOFR. Gets that feed into SOFR's uh, average, and that would be extremely brazen and probably likely to be caught. Or you could just voluntarily submit prices to people that were inflated, and then that data gets legitimately sent to um, the SOFR committee, right? And then it will be inflated, and you can try and do arbitrage on that based on. Selling cu- securities,
2: so there's loopholes in the new system as well, and uh it just requires more people to pull off the scam. The first one it's more of a lone wolf situation. The new situation's more of
0: an oceans eleven type of thing, yeah, basically, <laughs> maybe not at that level but, <laughs> um, like it wouldn't take an army, but it would take more people, sure, it would take a crew, yes. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> but don't worry. After the next financial crisis, we'll get to find out what they're up to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we'll see what happens with it. This, like the size of the euro dollar market, like I said, is estimated around $57 trillion, and it's it's gone up and down over the years. It steadily rose from the Latin American debt crisis of like the 80s. It rose starting then and then flatlined for a bit. And then they amended, they amended um, some banking regulations in the U.S. And then it shot up again. Hmm. But then, ever since it started falling again, like as a as a percentage of like the U.S. economy, which is <laughs> the range you have to be talking about in order to make sense of it, uh, it was falling for a while. As like after the in the wake of the LIBOR scandal, people got more cautious. And like they weren't using it as much, and also people were worried about increased regulatory oversight. But there's also been kind of increased use as of late, with um, like I was saying, with the coronavirus, because people want there's a shortage of dollars, and swap lines can only do so much with the Japan and the other developed economies. So right. what about the rest of the world? Right. And like to me, there's just there's all of the ingredients of yet another run on Euro dollars is there. And SOFR doesn't have enough of a bulwark against manipulation hmm. to where you wouldn't see that play in and be a factor. So I'm predicting that there, and uh, you can put me on the record now, I'm predicting there will be another crisis. <laughs> within five years and it involves specifically that it involves a run on the euro dollar and manipulation of the sofa
3: i mean it has been interesting to see you know with so far in the coronavirus crisis we haven't seen that that real collapse and in fact for up until now we've seen the stock market fully rebound mm-hmm. it's started to go back down a little bit this last week but i mean it is just like I don't entirely know what's going on based on the fundamentals. I think it has something to do with the fact that the Federal Reserve has, you know, a four and a half trillion dollar machine gun, and we have no idea what they're doing with it or who they're giving money to. And also, apparently, SoftBank was uh, heavily bullish on buying tech stocks and, you know, using all their Saudi genocide money to to pump up the market, but. You know, it is just something where, like you said, Steve, we are in a situation that is very reminiscent of the two thousand eight financial crisis, where you are starting to see this, this run on the euro dollar market because people need dollars for domestic obligations, and um, you know, it, it to me, it seems very possible that this could break at any time in the near future.
0: Yeah. Yo. You-
2: well, I think if uh, anyone out there is listening to the show, they've uh, learned everything they need to to uh, do the next crisis. So uh, we are the linchpin that is Skynet to the future that is uh, Sarah Connor ruining our economy.
3: <laughs> no, Yogi, we're going to be teaching that in the 400-level Grubstakers oh, oh, class. Oh, oh, sorry, yes, yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been reading a... ahead. <laughs> it's available for the uh, the $40,000-a-year patrons. <laughs> you oh, have to come... just. <laughs>
0: We're just like, Andy's gone. Quick, praise Petrodollar.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so uh, what Andy was saying about the Petrodollars on a previous episode, this week we're talking about why that's bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we'll do an episode on
0: Petrodollar, I don't know.
2: Well, when the reviews come in on this one and how uh, easy to understand all this content was, I think that the Petrodollar episodes Request will be
0: clamoring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe they'll be like, they'll hear my voice as the intro, and they'll just be like, ah, oh, forget this.
3: <laughs> <laughs> like, freaking Dr. Science. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listeners. Uh, Steve Jeffries here. Um, you're going to be eating broccoli this week. <laughs> I know we we usually talk about like international pedophiles, but uh, here's we've got an episode on the Basel three financial accords for you.
2: Yes. while well, usually we're a slice of pizza.
3: Today we are steamed Brussels sprouts.
0: <laughs> it's, it's really cool, guys.
3: <laughs> you need your broccoli to go big and strong okay Mm -hmm. i know you like Mm -hmm. the fucking gummy worms but not this week (laughs) uh
2: speaking of andy uh he's going to be taking a month-long break uh he'll be on vacation for this month and uh because uh, he won't be joining us, we're going to be moving to a new system where we're going to be doing two SoundCloud episodes and continue with the regular four episodes on Patreon until he arrives. So
3: Yeah, and just to underline, we did not fire Andy, and we have not kicked him out of the podcast or stopped paying him. He is still receiving his Patreon share, but um, this episode's coming out on the SoundCloud, so it'll be... Another two weeks before the next SoundCloud episode, and then uh, every week we're going to keep doing the Patreon, but just because it's the three of us, we're going to lighten our workload a little bit, Um, so we appreciate your understanding with all that.
2: We may go back to uh, a four-episode SoundCloud week if any of you that have connections to Billionaire just get that top-tier Patreon paid. I mean, just get at least two to three billionaires that we we haven't done an episode on and, and uh, mm. get them on our top tier. And you know what? We'll do eight episodes on for, on SoundCloud for free. We don't give
0: a fuck, all right? <laughs> well, thanks for joining us on this uh, Fraud 301 episode. And we're really happy you joined us for Euro dollars and, uh, and Libor and Sofer. And... We'll see what happens with the euro dollar market and see if it explodes or not in the next couple of years. But uh, anyway, I'm Steve Jeffries.
2: I'm uh, Yogi Powell. Leave a review. Tell your friends and uh, enjoy the rest of this week.
3: I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Um, I'm glad we were able to link up with our FBI handlers and teach uh, Fraud 301 to field agents, as well as (laughs) combine our usual role in PSYOPing the left by having identity politics debates. So, you know, it's nice when our two worlds can collide. Uh, Check us out on Patreon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting. Bye.